0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want?
0: You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. It's the podcast where I speak to bands and musicians about what they've got up to between making records and between going on tours. And more specifically, ask them about the various and precarious part-time jobs they've had along their way in order to sustain all that. Really, it's about finding your own way into the working world on your own terms. On today's episode, Felix White, whose book, It's Always Summer Somewhere, is one of my favorite ever reads, bringing together his love for cricket, the resilience of his old band, the Maccabees, and his mother's illness. Felix has done so many things over the years. He's perfect for this podcast. By virtue of the fact that he's just done so much, maybe not the traditional part-time jobs, but things that require discipline and the imagination to to do it and and make it work. He co-founded Yala Records, which brought us The Magic Gang and Willie J. Healy, As well as a bunch of amazing live YouTube sessions, there's some brilliant ones by Idols and Crows. He's a sports writer, sports commentator, our indie rock representative on Tailenders, writing scores for The Edge and the new John McEnroe film, McEnroe. Of course, guitarist in The Maccabees. And he's just formed a new band with his brothers, 86TVs, who are on tour now, supporting Jamie T around the UK, finishing up this Friday at Alexandra Palace in London. Cheers for listening to 101 part time jobs, supported by 2000 Trees Festival. Just a few hours away from London next July, 2000 Trees is one of the best independent music festivals in the UK. For next year, they've announced a four day lineup, which includes a Wednesday forest stage show where Bob Villan and Holding Absence are playing, supported by St Agnes, Prestamico, Dallaire the Liar, and Snakes. That forest stage is actually in the forest at 2000 Trees. Those four day tickets are available now. They won't be for much longer as I understand it. So if you want to go to 2000 Trees next year and have the time of your life, now's the time to get your ticket. With the voucher code 101POD, you get 20 quid off that ticket. That's virtually free money if you know you're gonna go anyway. It's one of the best rock festivals you can go to in the UK with incredible headliners. Last year saw Jimmy World, Turnstile, The Chats, Nova Twins, Thrice, Idols, and so many amazing bands. A lot of which you'll know, a lot of which you will know in the future. And it's kind of one of those festivals where you go to, to find out your new favorite band. I'm so excited about going myself. If you want to join me there, 101pod gets you 20 quid off, all of that at 2000treesfestival.co.uk. All right, here's Felix White on 101 part-time jobs. It seems to me like the Maccabees were sort of in that group of last indie bands where if you got a record deal, you could sort of float on it.
1: Do you know what? It's, so, it's such a good point. I think about that all the time now because I'm involved in music in different ways. I run a record label for one thing. And it wasn't something we took for granted. But I think you're right. I think it would just like as coincidence had it, I was exactly the right age just at the last moment that that groups were getting functional record deals that meant that you could essentially just live off it because i think what happened at that time if it's not too boring like a point is that the music industry hadn't quite yet adapted to the fact that records weren't getting sold so the internet was just becoming a thing like whatever it was napster and myspace and so so record sales were dwindling but major label um, like setups for, for deals were still handing out these sort of old school style record deals to bands. And at the same time, guitar music was really sort of in vogue and popular. So we just ha- happened to sort of land right in that. Um, not that anyone really wanted to sign us, to be honest. We, fiction we the only label <laughs> that did. but did. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. We just got in there right at the last minute.
0: You had that lovely moment of the—is it the Water Rats in King's Cross, where yeah. where the person from from Fiction Records came to you while you were packing up your leads and your pedal board?
1: He actually read that, and he hadn't—he um, hadn't told me he was reading the book. And he got in touch with me when he um, when he read that bit and said, and "That's exactly as I as I remember it as well." And that was such a lovely thing about the book is that there were so many of these tiny little moments that have stayed in my head, and you're never sure whether they whether you've misremembered them or they mean as much to the other person and there was loads of that through when people read the book like getting in touch with me saying oh I remember exactly this moment and that kind of
0: thing I did especially at the start when when you're young I read those first few chapters Felix and I was like fuck you've got a solid memory like I don't don't know I don't know that many people with that good a memory
1: yeah, I had a um. But you never know, do you? Because you could just be a. You could just be like living in borderline insanity and just misremembering everything um, <laughs> to write your own book. But i But I do. People do say that to me. But I can remember stuff very clearly and very well. And I have. I've had that. I've just been lucky to have that. Really. Yeah.
0: Did you find when you were writing those moments and sort of re-accessing those particular days, like that woman who's standing? when i read it oh, i i kept on thinking that she was outside the oval or sort of around oval train station tube station yeah
1: you're, you're, you're the first person i've done a lot of conversations and interviews about it but you're the first person who's brought that woman up <laughs> i'm so glad someone has because um she was such a part of um growing up like seeing her even now like where i live like a walk around a, a corner and i'll see the same person every time they, they really form benchmark moments of like that moment in your life didn't they but um, that, that, I wrote about that because um, I had sort of some interactive type conversations with my dad while I was writing it about the um, extent of my mum's illness and and how and how exactly it happened. So I was too young to sort of be so clearly aware of, of, of most of it. Yeah, and um, that that came up in one of those conversations. He he reminded me of that woman, and then, um, yeah, there was something amazing about her because she was on the corner of a ghetto blaster type thing <laughs> just waving and dancing all day and i there was like even for a young mind there was the idea like it was just this tiny window of like wow that would be quite if you just like like got rid of all your responsibility that seems like quite a good place to be and then the opposite of that was obviously watching mike atherton who was loaded with burdened with too much responsibility and that seemed quite stressful but and it was it was useful as a sort of device because. I really liked the feeling of, like, w- with hindsight, like cricket has explained so many moments of my life um, uh, to me and in su- in quite a dramatic way as well. So, like, I, I started to think about it, like, you know, in um, whatever it is, Return of a Native, when it's like the heath is the character <laughs> or that kind of thing. I, mean, I started to think about cricket like that, but it was always explaining to me where I was in my life. And of course, you sort of find things that relate to you more, but they did actually have like this sort of borderline disturbing sort of knack of either foreboding or being exactly uh, mirroring what I was going through at that moment in my life.
0: Cricket is responded to in so many different ways. Picking someone off the street, you're going to get a bunch of different responses of what they know, how they feel about the sport. It's steeped in privilege. Other people might be playing village cricket on a Sunday afternoon and borrowing each other's pads. It is culturally divisive in, qu- in quite a lot of ways. You know, I've, I've had it all my life. You know, I grew up playing cricket and played for Bucks for a couple of years as, as oh, a wow. bowler. And I went to private school for sort of other reasons really like my my dad was sort of a bit violent so I was sent to to boarding school and and right. and crick, both cricket and a private education it's not necessarily a side eye glance but it but it's a bit of like you know are you joking you know are you <laughs> it, it's it's, it's yeah. one of those things that is it's, it's, it's quote-unquote not normal I suppose
1: well I definitely felt like um that's really interesting what you just said about your life uh, that the um one of the consistent themes of my life has been defending cricket to people who say like, it's boring. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, and still to this day, I'm probably having that conversation three or four times a week by people that say cricket is boring or rubbish or whatever. So that's become just like defending <laughs> um, cricket. But in terms of like you saying about going to private school and stuff, that was big part of, um, Big part of the book was sort of really tackling things that I would have never said out loud before because I'd have been too embarrassed to. And um de- there's definitely an element sort of as you're alluding to of cricket, um, where it uh accentuates or punctuates being middle class if yeah. you're into it. Yeah. Not always, but in the south, maybe. And so there was always that um definitely I wrestled with that in my teens and early twenties when um being in a band and the bands that we were surrounded with were all trying to pretend they weren't middle class. And then being into cricket was like, oh shit, I clearly am. (laughs) So um, it's like always had a sort of sense of um, not allowing me to get away with that as well, um, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, But but you're right, I think people, I did some baseball stuff relatively recently in America because um, I'm really into baseball. Right. And even then, I was I, I was doing the commentary on the BBC with a, a pitcher called CC Sabafia, who's a legend in baseball, and a uh, woman called Melanie Newman, who called in the, the game. And they are into all sports. They knew all about football, was soccer and Formula One. And da, da, da. But as soon as I started talking about cricket, they literally had zero comprehension or understanding. Like, it, in their eyes, it was like talking... It was it was quite sort of um, psychedelic to them. So it, so it does have, yeah, cricket just has this weird knack of remaining um, untangible to a lot of people.
0: Tailenders, and I'm not the first person to say this. Oh, mate, when you did the first Hackney Empire and I was so hungover, I nearly <laughs> puked into my hands when Jack Leach came down the middle. But, but a few years before that, I had got my... Um, you know, suitable for this, got my first sort of nine to five ever i was twenty six yeah. uh, yeah. doing doing some dog 's body job and at Microsoft and i got and I clicked on tailenders because it was just before the world Cup and mate tailenders has done such an amazing job of making cricket funny, approachable you know you 're fucking in the dressing room with Jimmy Anderson. You know, you're, you're in indie rock with you, you're Greg James, Britain's best broadcaster. You know, it, yes. it's such an amazing experience. I love it. And it, it got me, yeah. I hadn't cared about cricket for 15 years. I got back into it. And, I, and I've, in the last four, five years, I've loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. So, you know, thank you on behalf of so many people that, you know, did oh, so nice. it. It's funny, yeah. it's brilliant.
1: Oh, man, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. I, I did, yeah, the thing, I mean, tailenders have been a huge thing in my life, to be honest with you, because interesting, you're talking about leaving bands and then, you know, being the catalyst for your fascination with sort of nine to five jobs and stuff. Because um, when my bands broke up, I was completely like bereft and lost. And I do feel like um, cricket and more pointedly, tailenders sort of had this weird, has had this weird knack of coming around to sort of, um, give me purpose and all that kind of thing so i'm so grateful to tailenders as a thing also interestingly talking about bands we kind of operate now not thankfully not literally but we operate a bit like a band like i think of it like a band yeah where it's like um all these different personalities and the, the tailenders thing itself is becoming bigger than anyone would have conceived it and growing wider than any one person and that's a really um, amazing feeling when that happens to like a group of people so it's also kind of been really cool to me but that that is that tail enders has almost been a complete replacement of being in a band
0: has it given you that sense of purpose where it is something that you regularly do and it's in your diary it is something that you can get paid for because you're basically you're basically a you know podcasts are huge now and they and they're getting bigger and it's the new medium of of broadcasting yeah i mean does, does this really feel like something you've you have you have settled into and this is one of your jobs
1: yeah yeah i mean definitely there was there, there was you you're right in sort of um Referring to that a little bit because to begin with, there was a sort of uh, there was a kind of resistance to being like you know, when it's your so programmed to being in a band, one of it, or a musician, one of the things that you kind of always, or I anyway, repeated to myself was that I, I, I would never do anything else else than be in the Maccabees or be in a band. So, there were definitely in the early stages, there was that kind of um, foring out or resistance for the fact that um, it was okay, mm. um, to. And not keep pursuing that in the, in the same sort of dogged, passionate way. But I'm so, do you know, the, the thing that it's, that's taught me most tail enders really is that um, it's exactly as it is. So you're hearing a conversation as it naturally happens and there's very little, I mean, probably, it's probably um, obvious, but there's often not that much... Um, sort of research or preparation goes into the conversations. We're all just like Jimmy's playing cricket and we are, you know, <laughs> always checking in on cricket in the background type thing. Yeah. So it's not like, so every time we do an episode, it's very authentic. And it's really taught me that um, sometimes that has, sometimes people can tell when something's real and it just, it has a sort of effect. And then I sort of do think back to a lot of the times in the Maccabees where everything has to be so perfect and so considered. Um, so it's, it's been a nice little life lesson in just putting things into the world. But sometimes, um, even if it's a little bit um, uncomfortable, the, the most... Uh, the most real thing is often the thing that's going to connect best
0: you're human you know you yeah. you'll cool var drs or the other way around and and that's great because <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah. that comes so, to yeah. mind i'm i'm, I'm putting you on the spot there i'm pointing the finger
1: <laughs> no there's, de- there's definitely a lot of uh, there's definitely a lot of flaws and when we first started recording it i actually i didn't realize we were recording it i thought we were doing the chat beforehand <laughs> so when i listened to the first few episodes i was like are you Kidding me! I thought we were just sort of messing around at the start. Like I didn't realize they were keeping in all the stuff, and we were just chatting. I, 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 because I had this idea of what radio shows, especially cricket podcasts, were going to be like. Mm. So, um, although ours is obviously in very loosely cricket based now, but I, d- I, didn't really um have any a conception of the, the fact that we were recording it where we were. <laughs>
0: yeah. You got some fantastic moments in "It's Always Summer" somewhere on TMS, where the nerves gets you a little bit, and and on Radio X was finding your way into tailenders and podcasting. Did that Did that feel like it was coming at a natural pace and a progressive step where you could sort of breathe freely and have a laugh in that format?
1: Well, Greg's really good at. Greg is really good at um, that. Like one of his main skills I've come to learn is that is making being in control of um a situation while making everyone feel at ease and it just flow really naturally and that's a much harder skill um as you're probably learning than than you'd imagine you know to keep to keep both those things afloat because you can say like oh it's chaos and we're just sort of messing around but actually actually listening to chaos and people messing around isn't any fun at all so it's there's that kind of um it, it, it takes a skill on Greg's part to make sure he ties that all together. You know what I mean? Obviously, doing a specialist radio um, show like John Kennedy's and the Six Music stuff, which I love, there's a there's a difference there because there's just a little moment where you're live on air. Mm. You can picture yourself in people's kitchens or whatever, and when you're first doing that, it's hard. It's hard for your brain not to deliver that how real that moment is. And to not sort of start to find incredibly straightforward sentences really difficult to get out of your mouth. Yeah. But I've learned, you know, that's just like anything. You just learn to do it in time.
0: It just popped into my head there that Zane Lowe has that incredible ability to Mm. ask a really pertinent question that's that's quite that's mm-hmm. extremely thoughtful and kind of evokes some 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 great answer and some great stories because that's what it's about right stories and yeah i feel like zane Lowe and greg they have that ability to shape something and to make it digestible yeah. and interesting and uh informative all at the same time and and a laugh you know the most important thing
1: yeah it's interesting you say that because i was talking with greg about zane we were talking about how brilliant Zayn shows, well, they still are on Apple, but um, at that time when he was on X and Radio One when we were growing up, you really did, like for the bands and for listeners, like you, re- you really did sort of absorb what he was saying um, and he felt like he had an authority on it. And it was just really entertaining as well, as you, as you say. So you had, once you have those things like meshing up against each other, that's when you've got magic, really.
0: 101 part-time jobs 101 part-time jobs 101 part-time jobs 101 part-time jobs How did you know that you could write so you met Phil Walker from Wisden he yeah. was encouraging you to write features I mean yeah. now that, that that fills in some of the some of the, the blanks but f- going from feature writing to book writing
1: when I was young, I, w- I actually I wasn't very good at many things at school, like terrible at science and maths and that kind of thing. But I was, I, w- I always found English and um, English quite a, sort of a natural thing to be able to do. And I had just sort of was interested in, in books and that. So that, that was like one of the classes that I didn't like flag behind and sort of look forward to. Actually, interestingly, when I was reading Johnny Marr's book, he does say at one point um, that a lot of guitarists, um, are good writers, which I hadn't realised or find it natural to write. Um, so I don't know how much truth there is in that. But anyway, but but, but then during the Maccabees years, just out of, almost out of sheer, um, the fact that no one else really wanted to do it, all the other sort of functional things like um, writing the, the mailer or like when there's a little press release blurb that you need to do I ended up doing all that stuff, even to the point where towards the end of the Maccabees, we realised that in your little press release, that's normally what journalists ask you about because no one's got time to research it properly. So in the end, I just end up writing the Maccabees PR pieces with just loads of... um, little touch points but if someone had just heard of us we'd be our something that wasn't like annoying.
0: yeah it makes sense or, right because the bands every band has a message whether they know it or not yes exactly
1: so I, I guess in some ways i was learning just the sort of mechanics of writing a little bit just by doing that but i'd never um I'd never imagined that I was going to end up writing books and all that kind of thing. All, they literally have all ended up just being sort of survival-y, so it was almost like survivalist methods in moving forward to the next thing. And cricket was just something I consumed a lot of. I've always consumed a lot of cricket writing just because I feel like it was always been the best sports writing, really. I, on tour, I used to cut out um, the, the articles and take them on to <laughs> tour with me. I remember on an Australian tour, I... I'd got all that week's cricket writing and cut it out for the plane journey and had it all stuck in my diary. Um, so I was sort of always really into it. But I'd never imagined that I would be actually doing it.
0: The depth that people go into writing about cricket is, and the sort of, the way that people sing their sentences, it makes me feel like warm and fuzzy inside.
1: Oh man, 100%, such a good way of putting it. And I, I yeah, I feel, that, I feel that now actually with, um, reading baseball writing so reading like New York Times pieces it's a very sort of Americanized version of the same thing like the um the pieces people write are are very sort of novelistic romantic but also really sort of succinct and um have really good economy with words and stuff like that and there's always like so with cricket and baseball there's so much failure and doom and loss to write
0: about it cannot it's just endlessly um interesting to read it's kind of reflected in culture. It's sort of the old man and the sea, DiMaggio yeah. sung about in Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson. Exactly. There is this kind of glory of it, isn't so it? And, and that still exists today, does it?
1: Yeah, exactly that. It's very sort of romantic and poetic. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, that's, that's that's really true. But yeah, but sorry, that's a very long answer to the question. I, I don't know, I have never thought I was gonna write a book. And then when the publishers that had done Jimmy's book asked me if I'd like to do a cricket book, at first I was just really, my thought, first thoughts was because the tail enders had been so sort of silly really and flippant and funny that I would write a book in that tone. But I was imagining it a bit like, um, a bit like high fidelity or something with John Cusack
0: yeah. Well, I
1: thought it be funny if I used, just instead of moving back through um, records to talk about breakups, I was talking about um, cricketing moments to sort of reflect my um, my personal flaws.
0: Yeah. And then,
1: uh, um, and then but, but then like, just like a lot of projects at that time that happened, fell, suddenly lockdown happened and I had, I was just, Everything else stopped, and so I just had this second where I, where I sort of realised, well, this is the only thing I've got to do, and if I'm going to do it properly, this is the only kind of book. This is the kind of book you only write once. So I just decided, let's. I had been reading a few grief books just because, because um, my mum died of cancer. Has always been interested in that, and I just decided I'm I'm just going to go fully in and use a, almost like a voice of a grief book writer inside a sports book because i don't think i've sort of really read that that often and just felt like that would be a um interesting process and i ended up finishing a book almost finishing a book but i hadn't intended to start if that makes any sense i saw i suddenly felt like well you know where you where you where you sense that the person is telling you things that they couldn't even tell their closest friends yeah and but a book is really helpful in that because you've got all the space just to say it. And you know that if someone's with you, if someone's kind of like made that effort to get inside the book, they're going to be with you on that journey, so to speak. So I suddenly felt like, yeah, like I said, I have this sort of small epiphany where I felt like, oh, if you put that inside what is essentially a book about, um, sport from a male perspective that there might be something really interesting and sort of untapped in that
0: it's funny how we respond to trust if you know when your mate tells you i've never told anyone this before immediately you become more sensitized you know your your emotions get heightened and you do listen more
1: man that's such a good point i've never heard anyone say that that's really um that's so true isn't it i just flashed back as you said that to you, you kind of, it's like letting you into a door that no one else is. Um, I mean, it's that yeah. responsibility. Yeah, it's responsibility. Exactly, exactly. There's an element of trust in writing a book like that and putting it out there that I think, um, I'm not talking about my own book, but, but other books that I've read in a similar way, but you do sort of, you, you respect that someone has let the guard down and is, and is telling you as much truth as, as they are even aware of about themselves. Yeah. And I think there's some, there's, a, there's um, something that definitely connects about that. I mean, I definitely know, I'm you know, i I'd never had a conversation with anyone in my life before I wrote this book about the fact that, um, that uh, I was secretly hoping cr- cricket teams and football teams I supported would lose because I would be sort of, when that happens, I've, you get the feeling of communal hurt and failure, and it was almost turned situation turned into a funeral. And I felt sort of safe in that moment. Yeah. I'd always felt like God that would be that's such a sacrilege thing to say about a team you support because obviously um, you want them to win. But since I've uh, re- since I've written that into the book, so many people come up to me in various formats, whether it's like DMing or in person, and almost sort of whisper. I hope that, you know, I I often hope that my team lose too and I've never sort of, um, (laughs) I should say it. Did did you build up
0: like a level of
1: guilt? Well, I'll tell you what the guilt thing is. I mean, to go slightly deep, but I think um, when people have all kinds of different forms of trauma and grief, don't they? Mm -hmm. But when you have the sort of one that I did, which is losing a parent when you're young, I think, I just, this probably goes for any age, but this, i just talk from personal experience. I think that um, there are so many things that happen in that moment because the person that you you um, re- rely on to give you things like unconditional love, touch, reassurance, support, um, guidance, all that kind of thing, that person's gone. So you, I, and I think a lot of people, end up going into the world and, and you um, unwittingly sometimes manipulate situations so that you're getting that in different forms from different places. And I think it's interesting that I, because I, I've gone in, went into sort of very public uh, jobs and done things in my life like that. It's like, you know, I sort of found that in groups of people and big emotional events and all that kind of thing. Like that's where I found a version of it. And I think that serves you for a while. But the problem with that, with people that have unprocessed grief, is that there comes a point where you become aware of what you're doing and then it turns into a guilt because you feel like you might have used, your, in my case, my mum's death, for some sort of personal benefit or like some kind of... Um, bargaining power you know so i think that's when the complicated stuff happens because that's it's easy then to sort of like harbor all these dark feelings about yourself and how you've responded to something without finding a vent for it and definitely the process process of my life and in the book as well is that sort of realization eventually that you we just do what we need to to survive And when there comes a certain point where you are behaving in that way, but you don't need to anymore. And if you're lucky, you might come to that realization and go, actually, I can get rid of these techniques that for a while were serving me, but are now um, stopping me moving on in my life. Yeah. I hope that makes, I think, I hope that kind of makes sense.
0: It does. And And I know this is maybe going off a bit of a strand, but I think, um, in my experience, when I've been really scared about something, like I was really scared of my mum cheating on my dad, and then it actually happened the oh. other way around, and it started in the outfield whilst fielding. Um, I would that tra- and it's and it's so clear to look back on now. But I dealt with, and I think I think it might be a little a little bit different here to to what you're saying. But I feel like they're in the same world. And the way I was try to, try to deal with that is I got this really really awful OCD out in the field you're so bored right and I was a bowler I was a quick bowler so you know all the personality traits that go with that and True. I I in the outfield I believed that I would be I, I didn't see it. it wasn't like a trippy thing it wasn't psychedelic but I thought I had like two wires on me like a puppet so when I walked in and I was waiting for the ball to come to me and to lob it back to keeper or whoever and I'd walk back to my spot my walking in spot if I turned around left so i'd do a mm-hmm. 360 to my left the yeah, next time yeah. i'd have to do 360 to my right in order right, yeah. to maintain balance in life and to stop my parents cheating on each other wow. and the, and the awful irony is that it it did happen and so right. that really fucked with me later on in life and i'm only dealing with that now
1: yeah yeah sorry
0: this is deep isn't it um no that's
1: really it's really fascinating and i guess that's sort of what um I guess that's a lot of what OCD or that is about. Is that you? Because there's a lot of stuff in that that is completely uncontrollable. You're trying to assert some sort of element that you can control.
0: Yeah, what's it's control.
1: And then, but and then also, but that's a way that you know that. Then I can imagine that's how you felt guilt yeah. because subconsciously or whatever you might have been feeling like you can do something to affect what you, whether your parents cheat on each other or not, which you clearly can't. But then the fact that they do meant, meant that you sort of carry that with you, like you failed in some way.
0: I carried that through my 20s and I still do it now. And I have to give myself a bit of a telling off, uh, you know, whether I use my left foot or my right foot for the first step. You know, they're triggers, I guess. that's
1: so interesting you're saying that because I, I do that. If I walk past a tree or something and I touch it with the outside of my right hand, for example. Right. I have to stop, go back, and then touch the tree with the outside of my left hand and the inside of both hands as well to balance it all
0: out. Right. And and so do you connect that? Do you tie that to a a thought? No, I've never, do you know what? I've never
1: sort of really, that's really interesting. I think I'm going to go away and think about that a bit more because I don't think I have too many other OCD type. Or do I? Well, I think, yeah, I think maybe... One thing I've noticed about as I've grown up is that I, I, as I'm getting older and have my own space, i'm I'm very controlled about my own space like it has to be um, a certain way. And I never was that when I was younger and I think that's that um, there is an element of um, protecting yourself from chaos or unpredictable things, you know.
0: said it before on the on tailenders which made me think i really would love to speak to you for for 101 is surrey players selling christmas trees in the off season
1: and oh my god yeah
0: and i wondered how much you you know how much you think that permeated your mind playing music or or being to you know you had two other brothers who are obviously quite inspired you know, playing music, skateboarding. Yeah. To sort of take the reins of your own shit, you know, kind of make your own future in a bit of a Joe strummer way.
1: That's true. That was a real sort of folkloric thing when we were growing up in, in South London, but, um but the Surrey team and Nadine Shah, and I think Ed Giddens might be, I might have got that wrong, but they're quite big Surrey players, successful Surrey players in, in sort of county championship winning sides. And, um, yeah, they, <laughs> they sell Christmas trees in, in, um, in winter, which is the most cricket thing ever. I, I guess what was always fascinating about that to me is that where, where fantasy and real life sort of collide because in my head, Nadim Shah and Ed Giddens were sort of almost superhuman people that didn't exist in the real human sphere. So to imagine that they firstly would need money in, in, winter, in winter to sell Christmas trees but also functionally did that it was just like one of the um, sort of thunderbolts from my childhood. Yeah. For about nine months, I would, uh, I was a charity fundraiser on the street, a chugger. Great. So I got quite good at it. Well, I was really timid. And to begin with, I was about 17 and I um, was quite timid and not, not, not keen on like just standing in front of people in the high street and just asking um, them to stop and then persuade them to give you their bank account details <laughs> but um, there was an older woman who was um, my team leader called Kat Luig who was maybe she was probably only mid-20s at the time but I, I really um, looked up to her and we had this sort of we didn't have a relationship anything, which was, I was just probably a young boy to her but I was kind of in awe of her and we had a few months where um we'd like smoke around the corner then put on the bibs and do charity fundraising all day and um you know normally quite unsuccessfully but um it's something i used to really enjoy and as i started to get better at it and realise that with like a certain degree of confidence you could stop a stranger on the street make them stop in front of you and then you know, five minutes later they might just be sort of giving you their bank details and the charity. That just the feeling that gave me, I think, was actually um did feed into being able to stand up on a stage because it right. gives you a sense of like what's possible if you're really um convincing some someone of something. But what happened during that one <laughs> really happened during that time was that it was right in the middle of uh, the period when there was loads of stuff in the press that actually the people that did that job were getting paid, and not all the money was going to the charity. It was going to the companies that that did that. And they were called it um chugging, charity mugging. And <laughs> and just as it was termed chugging, right? Um, exactly coincided with me um getting the nod to become a team leader of the Chuggers. So I used to go into the um, head office or whatever early, pick up the big bibs for the team and, and then do that. And he was right, it was a, a quite a controversial time. But one week, a man who was really inquisitive joined my team on his first day, asking me loads of questions. And he really liked Suede, the band. And we started talking about Suede and I liked Suede. So we kind of got on. And on his first day of work, um, he asked me loads of questions and I really liked him. So like <laughs> three hours before he was supposed to, I took him to the pub and we, and we went and got drinks and it was just like, wicked, see you tomorrow, John. And then the next day, John wasn't there. And the next day, John wasn't there. The next day, And I was thinking, it's so weird because I really like John. And he seemed to be so into the job. Like, why would he not tell me the next day? Anyway, a week later in the double page spread in the sun was an expose on me chugging and all the things I told their undercover reporter.
0: No way. Did they name you?
1: More than named me. There was a, um, (laughs) there was a a photo of me um, that someone like obviously hiding one of their photographers, like hiding behind the bushes or like trees or something had taken a, a circle, and underneath it was written. I'm not not making this up. Evil chugger, Felix White.
0: No, oh my god, Felix, that is that is fucking hilarious.
1: So, so, but I was really, um, <laughs> I was like, I was completely made up about it. I <laughs> bought it into school. I told everybody about it. I, I was like, it was like my first, um, my first like experience of dancing with fame and I, do you know what he weirdly he'd given me his number this guy john yeah because we got on that well the first day great and i phoned it and it was his it was him and we had this chat about it i was like dude what what the fuck <laughs> and then um, he said yeah i felt bad about it and we ended up having a chat about suede <laughs> and that was it
0: that is so good that's amazing Felix, thank you so much.
1: Cheers, Giles. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you.
0: So that was Felix White on 101 Part-Time Jobs. His band 86TVs are on tour now. Catch them this week around the UK. Alexandra Palace in London this Friday with Jamie T. is sold out. But it sounds like we're going to be able to see 86TVs soon. See you next week for a new episode. Go well. Cheers. Here's Cox Barra. I've been working all day